You're listening to a Roddenberry Podcast. This episode of Mission Log is brought to you by listeners like you, supporters on Patreon. Join us today at patreon.com slash mission log. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast, episode 450, Jutrell. Welcome into another episode of Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm John Champion. And I'm Norman Lau. Each week on Mission Log, we examine an episode of Star Trek in order to discuss the meanings, morals, and messages within. Today's episode is rife with them. It's Jatrell, the one in which Neelix confronts a brilliant scientist whose work nearly exterminated the Talaxians. We will get back to Jatrell in a moment, right after I let all of you know how you can stay in touch with all of us. Mission Log is a conversation about Star Trek. Drop us a line at missionlog at roddenberry.com and join us on Twitter and Facebook at Mission Log Pod. While you're at it, leave us a review and a rating at Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. And please remember, your comments could be used on Mission Log or Engage on the Roddenberry YouTube channel. And now, here is John Champion with this week's Trivia Cascade. All right, trivia for this week's episode. Jatrell, we have a story by James Thompson and Scott Nimmerfro. Here are a couple of writers who ha- have their only Star Trek credit with this episode. Scott was the more well-known among the two, and prior to Voyager, he was an associate producer and writer on the Tales from the Crypt series. It just so happens that James's only other professional credit was as a writer for an episode of Tales from the Crypt Keeper animated series. But Scott would find more TV success working as a producer and writer for a series like uh, Pushing Daisies and Hannibal later on. The original pitch only went so far, though, and once the idea was purchased, the task for scripting fell to the team of Jack and Karen Klein. While Jack had no other professional credits, Karen had racked up a couple with scripts for uh, Simon and Simon and T.J. Hooker. So finally, their script was handed off to Voyager writer-producer Kenneth Biller, who we just mentioned uh, last week, and he ended up doing a page one rewrite. His task was to heighten and personalize the drama, and he also dug more deeply into the real-world history that would influence this episode, and we'll certainly talk more about that later. The episode was directed by Kim Friedman, and here Kim was given a bottle show, one of those classic ways that Star Trek and many other TV shows use to tighten the budget and use only standing sets with a minimum of guest stars. Kim directed six episodes of DS9, and we are on her third of four total episodes for Voyager. Like I said, it is a bottle show. Can't expect too many guest stars. But we do get to say welcome back to Larry Hankin as Gaunt Gary, one of the figures who is part of the Shea Sandrine holodeck program. And a big welcome back to a favorite actor around here, James Sloyan, who appears as the title character of the episode. And welcome back to a favorite actor around here, James Sloyan, who appears as the title character of the episode, We met James Sloyan way back in TNG's third season where he played the Romulan Admiral Jarek in The Defector. He later appeared as the future adult version of Alexander Rojenko in Firstborn. Then we caught up with him on DS9 where he was the Bajoran Dr. Mora and Odo's Discoverer in two episodes. Outside of Trek, you may have caught James in any number of guest star roles on shows from Quantum Leap to The X-Files to... Buck Rogers in the 25th century, and of course, The Love Boat. And he was in the classic 1973 film The Sting, and in the slightly less classic 1980 film Xanadu. This is the last Star Trek appearance for James Sloyan. Welcome to the Delta Quadrant. Danger? Check. Darkness? Check. Disease? Check. But, wait, what does this guy want? Hooray! 
prologue. Inside Shea Sandrine, Tuvok and Neelix are learning the chess-like art of defensive billiards. Tom teaches Neelix the safety shot, which tactically maneuvers Tuvok into failing his shot, which by all Vulcan logic should have been successful. Sometimes you just have to blame the ship's stabilizers, or at least the lean in the table. Captain Janeway interrupts the holodeck program and summons Neelix to the bridge. When he arrives, he is taken aback by the Hakonian shuttle on the view screen. He explains to the captain that the Hakonians conquered his homeworld Talax nearly 15 years ago. The shuttlecraft's passenger requests to speak to Neelix and introduces himself as Dr. Mabor Jatrell, which causes Neelix to storm out of the bridge as the sheer sight of this man causes him to suffer extreme emotional distress. Act 1. In no uncertain terms, a furious Neelix tells Janeway that Jatrell is a mass murderer who used the Metreon Cascade, a weapon of mass destruction, to destroy Rhinax, Talix's moon, and home to over 300,000 Talaxians, including Neelix's family. Everyone on Rhinax was killed. Everyone except Neelix, that is, who was away on Talix fighting the war. Shortly afterwards, Janeway meets with Dr. Jatrell, who was taken aback by the technological marvel that is Voyager's transporter. She informs him that Neelix has declined their meeting. Jatrell is not surprised as he confesses he's not popular with the Talaxian people. He insists on scanning Neelix nonetheless to rule out any case of metremia, a cellular disease contracted by those who are exposed to the Mesteron Cascade weapon. Later in the mess hall, Neelix apologizes to Kess for not telling her about his involvement in the war, knowing that no matter the words, they would be inadequate in describing what happened, what he had to do to survive. When Janeway arrives to explain Dr. Jatrell's determination to examine Neelix for metremia, both she and Kess eventually persuade Neelix to surrender. I mean, agree. In the briefing room, tensions between Neelix and Jatrell are high. Janeway tries to mediate their respective best directions forward, but Neelix first wants to expose Jatrell for developing the Metreon Cascade in the first place. Jatrell defends his position as a scientific discovery perverted by the military. Neelix reluctantly agrees to undergo testing as Jatrell convinces him that his data may prove vital in saving other Talaxians suffering from atremia. Later, in sickbay, as Neelix is being scanned, he tells Kess about a vermin trap he invented, which over time made him see the rodent as a victim instead of a vile beast. Even though Jatrell knows this parable is aimed at him, he presses on, finishes his scans, and brusquely informs Neelix that he does have the disease. Act 2. In his quarters, Neelix tries to come to terms with his diagnosis. When Kess arrives, his reflexive, happy-go-lucky demeanor returns to the surface, but Kess knows him all too well. She knows he's protecting her from the pain of the inevitable, but as an Okampin, who has only eight to nine standard years to live, she would rather have them both cherish the time they have left, regardless of how long. Meanwhile, Janeway is deep in thought in her ready room as Jatrell arrives excitedly as he believes he has discovered a breakthrough to help Neelix. He tells her that Voyager's transporter could theoretically capture and contain a sample of the Metreon Cascade for further study, perhaps even pinpoint the rare isotope which would help cure all Talaxians who contracted metremia. Janeway, bursting with scientific curiosity, orders Chakotay to set a course for Talix, and even though, as he reminds her, is a significant detour from their present course. Suddenly, Jatrell is visibly shaken and stumbles in pain, but waves it off as being nothing short of a mixture of excitement and fatigue. In sickbay, Jatrell marvels at the sight of the doctor's agency to terminate his own program. Neelix needles Jatrell about his singular, if not blinding, passion for all things scientific, as Jatrell sidesteps Neelix's comments to focus on his work. However, Neelix presses Jatrell and wants to know why he chose a civilian target for the Metreon Cascade. Why not a military target or an inhabited planet? Jatrell explains that either he or someone like him would have eventually done what he had done. He also reminds Neelix that it cost him dearly as well, as his wife and three children left him for the monster they believe he became. Unimpressed and unmoved, Neelix shares a story as well, and one that ends with him watching the twisted and mutilated remains of a young girl named Palaxia wither away just because of Jatrell's unquenchable thirst for science. Admitting that the ignition of the Metreon Cascade was the moment that he turned into a monster, Jatrell also confesses that he won't have to suffer this burden for long because he has advanced metremia and only has days to live. Act 3 
The safety shot Neelix learned earlier at Shea Sandrine has returned to haunt his dreams as he goes round and round with Jatrell, who taunts Neelix for always taking the safe way out, the coward's way out. And just as Kess, appearing in this dream as the burned-in, mutilated Palaxia, approaches Neelix, he is awakened by Janeway, summoning him to the bridge as Voyager approaches Rhinax. Disheveled and exhausted, Neelix stares through the viewscreen to the charred remains of what was his home, and shares a memory of that fateful day when the Metreon cascade enveloped the sky in a blinding flash of light. Disturbed and unsettled, he leaves the bridge as Janeway watches silently in sadness for him. Meanwhile, in engineering, and much to Jutrell's amazement, Bellana successfully beams a sample of the Metreon cloud inside a containment canister, which Jutrell immediately delivers to sickbay. Later, Kess finally tracks down Neelix in the mess hall, behind his counter, sitting huddled, alone, and in the dark, and without his communicator to ensure his privacy. He finally confesses to Kess that he was no hero during the war. He was a coward who was on Talex, hiding from his own people because he was afraid to fight in the war. That's what saved him from what happened on Rhinax, and the shame of that has burdened him ever since. Kess is able to make Neelix face his guilt and accept that not being able to forgive himself is just as much to blame for his inner turmoil as is Jatrell for unleashing the Metrian Cascade upon Rhinax. Act 4. Jatrell's observations aboard Voyager have served him well. As the Doctor prepares himself to assist Jatrell with the Metreon Cascade sample, Jatrell uses the Doctor's shutdown code to terminate his program. With his privacy secured, Jatrell initiates his experiment, turning the once gaseous form inside the containment canister into some type of unidentifiable biomatter. Just then, Neelix bursts into sickbay, surprising Jatrell, who awkwardly tries to escort Neelix away from the experiment. Unable to keep Neelix from seeing the contents inside the containment unit, Jatrell subdues Neelix from behind with a well-hidden hypospray. Following up on Jatrell's experiments, Janeway tries to raise sickbay, but with no response. She reactivates the doctor who informs her that Jatrell deactivated him and that Neelix is unconscious on the sickbay floor. Janeway and Tuvok track down Jatrell to transporter room 1, where he pleads with her to allow him to finish what he started, because he now has the technology and the materials to do what he came aboard Voyager to do, to bring back the victims of Rhinax. Act 5. Jatrell proves his science is sound, and that the transporter was the missing technology he needed to isolate and reintegrate the individual isotopes of subatomic matter belonging to the Talaxian victims who were disassembled by the power of the Metreon Cascade. The Metreon cloud surrounding Rhinax is the vaporized remains of those who were killed by the blast, but suspended as subatomic particles within that cloud. Jatrell confesses that he has been trying to atone for his crime these past 15 years through using science to literally try and repair all of the damage and the devastation he ironically caused in the name of science. But time is running out as Jatrell's advanced metremia is beginning to overwhelm him. His condition with the disease is critical, and, as he admits, Neelix is non-existent, just a ruse concocted to maneuver Janeway to return to Rhinax so he could collect the sample from the biomatter cloud. As Jatrell stated earlier, science prevails as Janeway and Tuvok are compelled to tech the tech and see if they are able to do what Jatrell's data proves is possible, to reconstitute entire beings from their subatomic particles. But in attempting to do so, Voyager shows signs of massive power fluctuations that cause the cohesion of a being materializing to life on the transporter pad to flicker and tragically disappear into nothingness. And soon after, Jatrell collapses on the transporter room floor. Later, Neelix enters sickbay to see Jatrell one last time. As Jatrell lay dying on a biobed, Neelix reconciles his hatred for him with the admission and acceptance that the Cascade has punished the both of them for long enough. And with that, Neelix forgives Jatrell. As he lifts a finger in response, Jatrell says nothing and closes his eyes for the last time. The End Man, uh, there's so much heavy stuff to discuss in this episode, which we will get to and and maybe only be able to scratch the surface of how much is in there that is uh, worthy of a discussion. But we'll start things off with a bit of lightness, a bit of fun. We're back at Chez Sandrine. Hey, it's nice to be back. Always fun. Familiar, fun place. Uh, although no Sandrine. And um, uh, no sign of uh, some of other Tom Paris's very... Um, 
<laughs> interesting friends, uh, mm-hmm. but we do see Gaunt Gary, and you know the 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 game of billiards, the game of pool, is uh, pretty fun. It's pretty great, but what I appreciate is how the setup gives this hint about the story with uh, Neelix calling a safety being seen as cowardly. He he sort of, you know, senses that. And it's it, it's one of those nice moments that is a good little bit of uh, uh, a payoff when you get to watch it again and again. You see just that little bit of uh, subtext there. You know, we've... Um we've disparaged previous episodes from having kind of like these disconnected introductions using the holodeck sequence. But in this case, you could clearly tell that there was foreshadowing going on, especially Mm -hmm. with something as significant as the interaction between Tuvok and Neelix. I mean, why would they be playing pool together if it weren't important as a message? Right, right, right. Yeah, very nicely done. Uh, And of course, who who cannot love Tuvok blaming the ship's stabilizer? (laughs) on his shot you know actually i should learn something from him and i should have done exactly that when i was getting hustled at pool on the star trek cruise so maybe next time that that'll be my uh my thing to blame yeah it's, it's an issue with the ship's engines always is always always should always. be yeah it always reminded me of the scene where best laid plans with spock playing three-dimensional chess with kirk in where no man has gone before and kirk beats him and spock's like yeah. How is this possible? Yes. Must be the ship stabilizers. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Good stuff. Good stuff. I, I got to say, you know, it, seeing James Sloyan here, it, it's sort of like Jeffrey Combs now in the respect that no amount of makeup and, and different character names can hide him. But at the same time, he's just so good that it doesn't matter. Like, you immediately buy the new character that he is and that that character is fully realized from the start. So it, mm-hmm. it, it's pretty great to uh, to see. You know, you, see, you hear his voice and immediately you go, oh, that's the guy. Like, e- even with the makeup, you go, that's the guy. But you know that you're in for something good. Um, and it's sort of like, same thing with Jeffrey Combs now. You can you can hear it in their voice. I would say, you know, Jeffrey and James. You can hear mm. it in their voice. You can see it in their eyes. But even though they're working behind prosthetics, you know that they're giving you something new almost every single time. Oh, yeah. Yeah. A hundred percent. And that's why they keep coming back. Because whatever that thing is, it's new, but it's really good. Now, Jatrell has been studying the transporter system of Voyager. And I... I, I, I mean, he may not be a war criminal specifically for Captain Janeway, but she's just cool with the stranger going through all of their systems. I, I guess it's kind of like you think way back to Spacey and there's Khan. The, this unknown visitor just hanging out in sickbay is like, I'm just going to go through all the technical specs on your ship. Sure, that's available. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? The trust, yeah, the trust issue was surprising just because of, um, you know, in in their dealings with the Vidians. They know that with uh, with their best intentions, sometimes the danger is evident or present. So right. you should at least right. have somebody shadowing Jatrell just to make sure that he's not accessing information that he shouldn't access. Like, I, I don't know, like the doctor's command codes to shut himself down. Yeah, so, like that. Like that. Something Figured like that. that something important. Out. Yeah, <laughs> sure. Uh, I love watching Kate act, and mm-hmm. sometimes you like watching her reactions just as much as like listening to her soliloquies, because there are times where she just watches Neelix, just the tortured version of Neelix, like walking on and off the bridge, and her eyes track him. And you can just see like these nuances of how she's interpreting his pain and trying to understand it herself. Yeah. Very, very, again, just subtle moments, but speaks volumes. Yeah. And also kind of like the subtlety of, of Neelix's choice of words sometimes in this episode definitely lean towards him suffering from post-traumatic stress because mm-hmm. he goes from happy-go-lucky Neelix to I'll surrender, you know, when yeah. he and uh, he was um, forced to, you know, to undergo the treatments, you know, there was a darker tone. Mm-hmm. to the way he spoke there was a darkness in his eyes and we're going to probably get into all kinds of accolades and praises for ethan sure. in this episode I, I, look i don't want to make a huge thing out of it because we've gotten emails about it before <laughs> the, the emh actually turns himself off here so it, it, again it's like 
what is he doing and exactly for what purpose? Like, we've gotten comments. I know, I know. And and I do get the analogy that it's like one program on my computer at work, and I can have those programs running or not. But by the same token, a small part of that program would have to be running all the time anyway just to, like, make sure that the EMH activates when he is needed because he has that ability to activate himself and the question is why or how under what context would he activate himself does mm-hmm. how does he know so uh, anyway it th- this is the first time we've actually seen that play out and then we immediately see it get exploited <laughs> you right know? right so yeah i i yeah. I, I say just leave the guy on uh, you know chitrell could have said you know turn off the doctor the doctor's like no yeah, yeah, you know, like, <laughs> right. Because I'm yeah. essentially because that no is yeah. just I'm turning myself back on again. So I don't know what you're doing here, dude. Yeah, right, right. The whole thing with Janeway saying, "Hey, let's go back to Talex and Rhinax and figure out what's happening," and Chakotay saying, "You know how far away that is? That's kind of a detour." All the lower deckers and like the Maquis are like, "What are you doing?" <laughs> I know. I want to see that episode. I want to see like people are just like, "Oh my gosh!" So there's three, four days we've lost the heading back home. Well, I think it's know? been months. Since we met Neelix, it's been months since the caretaker incident. So you have to assume that Neelix has just gone way, way far away from the Talaxia system. Who knows mm-hmm. how many other people have gone away? And and how far back did Voyager have to turn around to get in there? How far off course is this? <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, everybody. I was like, okay, well, I guess that added another month to our trip. Yeah. Yeah, I, I need to hear, like, like Mariner's, you know, <laughs> translation of this, you know, when she talked about it with somebody who returned home. Right. Let's talk about the tear. One of my favorite scenes in one of my favorite movies of all time is in uh, Edwards Wick's Glory. Mm. There's a scene oh, yeah. where Denzel Washington, his character Trip, is uh, lashed to a wheel and then whipped in front of the entire company. And there's yeah. a scene where um, James Horner's score and Denzel Washington's tear match perfectly with the tear dropping. You can see the shame and the pain and the welling of that tear in his eye. And then it all of a sudden just kind of, it bursts at the right moment where all of the moments of that film meet perfectly. Mm -hmm. It's one of the most powerful Mm -hmm. moments in cinema I've ever seen. Mm -hmm. This is almost really close to that, in my opinion. There's a scene where James is talking about, or Jatrell is talking about the shame of the Metreon Cascade, but the pursuit of science. And he knows what he did. Yeah. He, can, he can't admit it, but he knows what he did. And you can see the tear building in his lower, you know, lower yeah. eyelid. And yeah. then just one turn, it drops. And yeah. I'm like, there it is. This is why I love this episode. Yeah. Spoiler. This yeah. is why I love this episode. Because of a moment like that. The, the Kim being able to pull that direction out of James and have that moment. Yeah. Well, in an episode of Powerful Moments after Powerful Moments, I mean, let's talk about how good that uh, monologue was about Palaxia, the the woman um, that uh, well, child that uh, that Neelix says that he encountered and thought was a monster, and mm-hmm. uh, how that illustrates the very real consequences of what Jatrell had just sort of envisioned as you know essentially a science problem. Bravo to Ethan Phillips, which is probably what we'll be saying many more times in this episode. Checking Jatrell's neck for a pulse after Jatrell collapses for the final time in the transporter room. Mm. Um. So how do they know that, uh, <laughs> that uh, Hakonian has a pulse in his neck, like carotid artery in his neck? Right, uh, yeah, yeah, but a good guess, uh, maybe. <laughs> L- yeah. Lucky lucky for uh, Tuvok, yes, exactly. I mean, I, I know that it's shortcut for, is he okay? You know, is of he course. alive? Is he dead? But it's just one of those things where I'm like, you know, Voyagers, they are, they are rife with pulling out a, a tricorder at any given moment just to check anything the other thing you do is to say well does anybody have a mirror that we can hold up to his nose we can see he's got nostrils <laughs> at the very right. least we can see that <laughs> by the way I, I i'm surprised more of a return to a serious comment here I, i'm i'm surprised but pleasantly so it just the number of powerful scenes back to back powerful monologues that neelix gets here because look you go back to that moment on the bridge uh, to the the scene with his confession to Kess, 
actors are lucky to get one strong monologue in any piece and and here he's got multiple and it just it, you know talking about having the right character in the right moment and making it perfect have to point out here kess because we don't get a ton of kess in this episode but where she is almost perfectly used every time the sensitivity to neelix in that moment where he is confessing his cowardice to her sympathizing with the burden i I just love the way she says like you've had to carry this around without condemning him without registering shock just being ultimately sensitive and caring about what he's going through it was a beautifully written scene in a very well acted moment i mean it it harkens back to say what Cybok was doing with you know his empathetic powers you know in Star mm. Trek Five. Mm-hmm. He wasn't judging anyone. He was unburdening them of the pain and shame of whatever was causing them their yeah. the stress, the the post traumatic stress of their lives. You know, mm-hmm. uh, especially earlier on, and definitely in the sequence with Kirk, Spock, and McCoy. You know, he's yeah. not he's not laying out judgment. He's giving them the opportunity to free themselves from pain. Right. That's what she's doing, right? right. right. Um, and uh, I'm glad you brought up uh, Cass because Jennifer Leon in this episode, and, and especially with Ethan and the material they gave for him to work with, this is when their relationship really worked. Yeah, you know, not as the kind of like the Talaxian splaining, you know, Neelix of before. You know, this is when you really feel like they're connected. Right. Um, lastly, though, the biomatter that was in the transporter pad beam achieved sixty or little bit higher than 6% cohesion. Mm. Did it, or did we know, or does anyone know if it achieved some type of consciousness? Did anyone oh. get reminded of Sonak in this scene from uh, the motion picture? Yeah, I think what you're saying is what we got back didn't live long, fortunately. What a relief. I thought Jetrell was showing up to sell school fundraiser candy. We will get right back to Jatrell, but first, a word of thanks to our sponsors. That's all of you, part of the Mission Log Patreon community uh, over at patreon.com slash mission log. And we know that a lot of you like to uh, check in on the Patreon page just so you can get the early access to our unedited, unexpurgated shows. You get those at least a week in advance. Plus, you get the video version of Mission Log unedited. And uh, that also gives you access at all levels of membership to the Mission Log Discord. Tell us about the Mission Log Discord, Norman. Now, the Discord is our group uh, for the subscribers uh, from Patreon for as little as a dollar a month. And you can join this fantastic community of, at one point in time, we were all just kind of trying to figure out how we were going to survive the COVID space since we were so separated and there weren't many ways for us to communicate and share our, our fandom and our love for all things Star Trek aside from our love from all other fandoms that have kind of populated and taken lives of their own on Discord. But I think at the end of the day, one of the things I, I, I feel most proud about, John, I know you do, do too, is that we've created this, this space where people can come share their fandoms from a variety of different ways, and uh, especially through food and through pictures of food, because we are so proud of that. <laughs> but on all seriousness, folks, it's a community of people that just enjoy sharing the space together, sharing their fandoms together, and sharing it in a way where you know we do it uh, the respectful way and uh, the way that celebrates uh, all the positivity that comes from the sharing. Yeah. Absolutely. And I want to give a special thanks to some of our most recent subscribers, Chris, Laurent, Carlos, Corey, Brian, London, Wayne, and Davina. And if you would like to be among them, uh, whether your name starts with a C or not, uh, you can join us at patreon.com slash mission log for as little as a dollar a month. And there's even a discount if you subscribe for the year. And that gives you access to all the early releases, gives you access to the Discord. And at some tiers, you even get some exclusive swag that is only available to the community at patreon.com slash mission log so we will see you there all right norman you know every now and then an episode like this comes along where you you start to take notes and then you think 
oh, well, this would really be a great conversation that we could have for half an hour. <laughs> and then another moment in the show happens and you go, well, that could also be a great <laughs> moment for half an hour. But we kind of have to pick and choose our battles here because there's so much. I will say, because uh, I want to ask you, correct me if I'm wrong, I think this is the first time that Neelix and Cass have had a conversation about how long the Ocampo live, or how long she is expected to live. Mm. Is that right? Well, I know that um, there was a reference to that uh, in Caretaker very quickly, though, in the yeah. in the camp. Okay, yeah, um, but but nothing. That, yeah. that just seems like yeah that that in itself could be a whole other conference because they they directly address it here yes and how that is a reality in the relationship that's a whole other thing that we could talk about but there's so much there's so much that is meaty in this episode to get into mm-hmm. and one thing that i that i want to talk about that i think is very effective here and and really is part of the heart of this episode is this the the subtle fake out in this script on the first viewing i took the scene between neelix and Cass in the mess hall where neelix says that he can't talk about the war i totally at face value totally fooled me i believed it of a wow you know neelix has this background that we just don't know a lot about but clearly Cass is aware of it even if she doesn't know the details and his reluctance and his discomfort and then his lashing out at Janeway when she entered, it all worked and it all felt very real, partly because I thought about people in my family who were veterans and who wouldn't or couldn't talk about their experiences. And I really respect that. And I'm also very grateful for the people who can and do talk about their experiences because we need that as part of the historical record and the the personal record. But then when we do have the reveal about Neelix not serving in the war and lying about it, that earlier scene, the subtext of what Ethan is doing in that scene takes on a whole new context. And I thought just for the sake of the story, but also for the sake of the drama, the believability, it all worked incredibly well. The great thing about this episode is you take what you've learned from not only this episode and the way that this episode unfolds Neelix's narrative, his personal narrative of of trying to hide this this person that who that no one knows, not even Kess. You know, there's mm-hmm. only the person that knows the history and what the burden that that is being carried is Neelix himself. And now take the information that you know from this episode and go all the way back to Caretaker. Yes. And now it yes. changes his storyline completely that's what i love about this strange subversion of expectation where again you're right john at the beginning of chase sandrine you're like oh ha 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 neelix is you know he's just Mm -hmm. being kind of like the clown again but there's a reason and we understand that reason it's a it's neelix summoning up as much positivity in his life as possible so that he doesn't look at the mirror and see how much he hates himself I I do want to pause you there for just a moment because we got an email early on when in an episode I pointed out how I disliked that Neelix was being telegraphed as the comic relief. It wasn't enough that he was just the guy being funny and being out of place by like serving canapes on the bridge at an you know inappropriate or maybe appropriate moment. It was also, you know, putting him in a costume that is ridiculous. Mm-hmm. And the part of me that sometimes can't get out of the production reality of a show says this is the designer, the costume designer here and and whoever else on the staff telegraphing that he's the goofy one, that he's the silly one. And, and that drives me crazy. Okay, but if I can keep this in my head the rest of the time, that there is this dark undercurrent. And, and this goes back to the email that we got, one one of a few that were of a similar theme saying, no, 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 Neelix is overcompensating for the darkness and, and the pain and the difficulty inside him. And, and uh, that is an absolutely great read. I think an episode like this 
obviously puts that to the forefront, makes it uh, makes it visceral mm-hmm. in a way that isn't just you know telling you who the character is. You get to feel who that character is, um, and I hope that continues because my my worry is that oh look, it's Neelix in a silly hat again. It's Neelix fumbling in the kitchen again, and I. I, I know that there was that and there will be more of that to come, but I want an episode like this to stick. And that makes complete sense because we don't want this episode to be glossed over and really not referred to again because it's given yeah. us this this very specific moment in Neelix's, you know, character growth that he can't that he can't really return to. He can only move forward from. And sure, is yeah. he going to be jovial and obnoxious and, you know, outlandish in the, what he wears and what he says? Of course he is, because that's what he's kind of programmed himself to do to deal, you know, with the burden that he's been carrying. But now he's unburdened himself from that. And, I, and one of the things I think is really important to, you know, to, to focus on is not just Kess's relationship with Neelix, but the level of, of counsel or being a counselor to him because... Uh, she wants him to focus on the joy of of being alive. You know, the gift that he's been given that he didn't mm. die as one of the three hundred thousand on Rhinax. You know, mm. even though that he believes that his cowardice is the reason why he's alive and the reason why he's torturing himself and the reason why he focuses the hatred upon him and on Jatrell, probably more on himself. There mm. is a reason why he's still alive. And Kest said, "You know what." I'm only here for a short amount of time. You're only here for a short amount of time. Why should we stay in, in locked in the past with all this pain and this, this burden that you're carrying? Instead, we can move forward and try and find something that's worth living for. And that's you know the time ahead of us. Well, that's interesting, right? Because uh, Neelix has this kind of survivor's guilt, which mm-hmm. is very real and very powerful in a way that Jatrell isn't burdened by that because... Neelix Neelix doesn't have the out of saying, I was just following orders. I I was just doing what needed to be done. He doesn't have that out. Mm -hmm. So everything has had to be internalized for him. So, yeah, that that self-hatred then is going to be very strong and doesn't have an outlet the way that Jatrell could potentially have. Not not to say that it's easy for Jatrell, but but it's a different kind of coping. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in the end, well, let me backtrack a little bit here because uh, there was something that it's funny when I started taking notes for this episode, um, as we often do, you know, I, I don't want to look at anybody else's notes or comments before I write my own. So I just start writing things down. And then at the end, like right before we record, I'll go read what else happened and like production background to try to fill in. So one of the first notes that I took was let's talk about J. Robert Oppenheimer and the Bob. Of course. Of course. <laughs> and I did not realize that Ken Biller had specifically and when he got, you know, they had the story pitch that they bought, then they had uh the original script by the Kleins. But what Ken Biller rewrote was really going back and doing a deep dive into Robert Oppenheimer and doing a deep dive about the bombings of uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And he said, in fact, that that was just psychically very traumatizing for him. It was very difficult because he spent so much time there mentally. So I, I was relieved to see, first of all, that I was not totally off, but I was going to go <laughs> with my I was going to go with my notes regardless. And yeah, my notes were right in line with what uh, Ken Biller had in mind when he rewrote the script and we've mentioned before how uh who oppenheimer was he was you know director of the los alamos lab and one of the chief scientists on america's development of the atomic bomb Mm -hmm. and we talked before about how he grew to regret the power of his creation and he lobbied in the years after world war ii for the denuclearization of the world's super superpowers he was so horrified that a second nuclear bomb was dropped on Japan that he went to Washington, D.C. in person to register his opposition directly with the Secretary of War. And not much later than that, President Truman banned him 
from the office. And, and Oppenheimer eventually lost his security clearance. Now, he continued to lecture and be an advocate, and his reputation was mostly rehabilitated. But the, the parallel here is certainly very clear uh, to anybody who knows those historical uh, stories. So in the same way that the DS9 episode duet used the history of the Nazi concentration camps as the inspiration for the background of Kira and uh, Maritza's story, this story uses the bombing of Japan and the immense moral and ethical dilemma there as the inspiration for what plays out now. And Oppenheimer clearly is reflected in Chitrell, who is a man doing his job under immense pressure and guided by what he thinks is a moral or maybe to be generous, maybe we just say that it is uh, an amoral. Mm-hmm. It, it is not moral or immoral. It is an amoral pursuit of science separated from the human cost and because in his eyes it's the time of war and and as he says it, the, the science is going to happen anyway it was an inevitability that this would happen i mean that's that that is really kind of like jatrell's story here like where do you balance the pursuit of science and how that turns into megalomania because you can justify your actions based on said science and the pursuit of pushing technology forward for the benefit one of the war two of that science being able to you know uh to benefit the society of who you are fighting for in this case would be the Hakonians. so there are mm-hmm. there are two quotes that we hear in this episode specifically that you know uh Jutrell uses to try and justify like why he did what he did he said he's simply a scientist he developed the weapon yeah. but it wasn't he who enacted the weapon that was the military that wasn't me that makes absolutely bonkers sense to me it's like you under military funding created their weapon they can't use something that you don't create (laughs) right 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 so you could have said no i'm not going to do it i'm not going to use my intellect to you know be the catalyst to the murdering of hundreds of thousands of people that's not what i that's not what science is about so how can he justify the pursuit of science with turning that over to somebody who all they have to do is just push a button? That, that's not the pursuit of science, you know, using it in military terms. That's just – that's what's the word I'm looking for? That's basically just advocating for um, a moral high ground, you know, the moral high well, ground. Well, let me ask- well, let's try to put ourselves into all the various shoes here of the, the players at hand. So the moral conundrum is this. You know, Neelix asked Jatrell why didn't he speak up about the weapon that he created. And Jatrell, that, that that's the moment that he says that it was a scientific inevitability. And that's the same argument that the Americans had saying, well, the Nazis are working on an A-bomb. And later, that's the argument used to escalate, escalate the arms race with the Soviet Union. Well, they're working on atomic bombs. And, you know, as we were developing the hydrogen bomb, that's when Oppenheimer said, like, no, 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 you cannot do this. You cannot keep doing this. So what should somebody like Jatrell have done? Or, or did he do the right thing? And, it, you know, th- that's using that very loosely. Believe me, I understand. By making sure that they had it first. Right. Because that, that's the argument. That the argument is saying, well, if we don't develop the, the nuclear bomb, the Nazis will. They will come after us. Now, other things played out there so that i from reading for it, it seems like oppenheimer had in mind that the first target would have been germany but by that time the nazi regime had collapsed hitler had killed himself so now we turned our eyes on the pacific mm-hmm. and in his understanding he even he even said like that he feels or felt uh, that that it was a justified action, even if he can also be horrified by that action. 
you know. So here's here's Jatrell saying um, it, it's not possible to be a scientist unless you believe that all the knowledge of the universe and all the power that it bestows is of intrinsic value to everyone, and one must share that knowledge and allow it to be applied, and then be willing to live with the consequences. I mean, that's easy to say so, when you're behind the button. It is, but right? what would he have, what would he have done if their enemies, Talaxians or not, somebody else had come up with this weapon that could wipe them out first? I mean, there's a certain level of arrogance that one, you know, someone like Dutrell or someone like Oppenheimer has to accept and be called out on because they're like, well, if it's not me, it's going to be someone else. So I'm going to burden the responsibility of getting to that point first before anyone else does because I know that I can control the powers that I'm going to unleash on humanity or the universe. I mean, let's go back mm-hmm. to like Jurassic Park and let's go back to probably one of the best quotes that comes uh, from, right? It, it comes from- Yeah, you, know, you, you was, thought it, I thought it, yeah. It's Jeff Goldblum, he's Ian Malcolm, he's talking about the dinosaurs and he's looking at, um, he's looking at uh, everyone in the, in the conference room and he says, your scientists were so preoccupied whether they could, they didn't stop to think if they should. That's what this discussion really is about. Like, should they? And if they should, why them? And if why them, what gives them the right? And who gives them the right? And then that right gets unleashed. But the thing is is that they have the defense against why they chose to do what they did because somebody else was going to. So the moral high Mm -hmm. ground, I think, is beyond arrogant when you make that choice. Because at the end of the day, I get to make that choice that affects the fate of of millions or billions. So who gets that right and why? Well, I, I, again, it, you know, not sort of not sort of arguing necessarily from my point of view on this, but trying to see trying to see the type of uh, argument that would lead the Americans in World War II to say we have to develop this weapon and we have to deploy it because Either look, the, the you know the war in Europe is over, but the war in the Pacific continues, and it will continue at great cost of life unless we do this one thing. And I, I looked at it this way as well. So, all right, Jatrell is consumed by this guilt of what he rightfully so. <laughs> that is absolutely the correct position for him to be in now, and. Even if you say that he made the right decision for the time, clearly it doesn't mean that that's without consequence. So can we even, just you and I, a couple of people who have not faced this type of problem on this type of scale, can we even think of a trolley problem on this type of scale? Okay, so by taking action, thousands of people will die. Tens of thousands of people will die. By not taking action many thousands more people may die if a war drags on longer. Either way, either way, the blood is on your hands. Nobody walks away from this clean. But that is the conundrum that you're faced with. And and uh, Neelix, by the way, consumed with his very earned anger and horror and resentment that he has for Jatrell and what he represents. But I love that he is simultaneously consumed by the guilt he has over not taking action that was expected of him by expected of the people around him who were at war you know there's this great there's this great gray area of morality that we visit with Jatrell but then how comfortable are we with the gray area of Neelix's decisions as well not to say that Neelix necessarily could have or would have made a huge difference in what happened there. He might have gotten himself killed. He could very well have been there at the time that this uh, Cascade weapon was deployed. But I, I appreciate that an episode like this with this kind of writing lets us be there with the emotional reality, but also the impossible moral question that either of these two people face. I mean, that's all it ever is. School fundraiser candy or someone trying to absolve themselves of war crimes. So here we are, John, at the end of Chitrell. Um, 
one of the lighter episodes I think we've tackled so far on Mission Pod. <laughs> I'm not sure. Maybe that or ex post facto. Kind of like in the same ballpark, but not really. <laughs> Subtle differences. How, how, yeah. how dare you speak those two in the same sentence? I have to throw a curveball of humor in there a little bit, just because, like Neelix, yeah using it to alleviate the heaviness of this episode in particular just the, the sheer amount of uh, moral conundrums that we've been trying to like wrestle with and whether or not we've come up with the answers I, I think that at the end of the day at the end of this episode we are going to have to eventually land on does this hold up and what are the morals and meetings and messages if any that we found so let's start with you John uh, look yeah, I mean, look, part part of the beauty of this episode and an episode like it is that you and I doing this podcast are, are going to come up woefully short of the multitude of discussions that can be had about what's in this. So I love it when people write to us separately uh, or Facebook or Discord or whatever and say, hey, but what about this angle? And what about this sort of moral take on it? And I... I love that because I know that we're just very limited by the two of us in this format. We're going to give it a shot, and then we look forward to hearing from all of you. So, yeah, the question, does the episode hold up? And look, it's no secret. There have been some recent stumbles in the first season of Voyager. And here we have a Voyager episode that not only returns to a familiar Star Trek type of story, but it uses the strengths of the characters we have. And I think that's really what we want to see. It's like, here's here's this story that you could plug in to a different series, but we're going to tailor it for the unique situation that we have with the premise of Voyager. Not every story can or should be a Janeway Tuvok Paris Bolana focused script. And Neelix got some good moments at the start, but then it was like the writers didn't quite know what to do with him other than to telegraph that he should be the comic relief. Mm-hmm. Now we get a story of depth with Neelix that is pitch perfect for him. I, I hope that we can all remember, as I said before, that that this is the depth of the character as we go through the series, if indeed it feels like he goes off the rails again at some point. Um, the, the great moments here just inform so much about him. And of course, of course, of course, we have to talk about Duet mm-hmm. from DS9's first season. These two stories run parallel in theme and in style. And that is perfectly okay for Star Trek to revisit some familiar ground. Um, I have a feeling that at the time that this one came out, two years after Duet, uh, that there were many viewers who felt like it was too close. But it just illustrates how the series were really treated separately. You know, they, they weren't necessarily expecting them to overlap for every audience member and that the writers and producers could do something unique with their own character sets. Now, now that said, they were aware of Duet and they wrote this knowing that this would be a, a parallel, not, not a retelling exactly, but a parallel that had similar influences, similar thought behind it. Here's what's absolutely brilliant. For all the parallels that we can draw with Duet, the real strength is that we get to tell a similar type of story with a completely different type of character. Even if they had planned it from the beginning this way, putting Neelix in the position that was for Major Kira, absolutely inspired as a way to get at the heart of who these different characters are. So, 100% yes, this holds up in pretty much any way that we could slice it. As a production, it is appropriately moody and intimate, very much like that two-person play that uh, the duet is. As a slice of Star Trek, using science fiction as metaphor to examine very difficult human concepts, yes, holds up there. And just as a character drama that strips away the layers and gets to the heart of the players, yes, again, it holds up. So, It's not about comparing this to Duet, which will always be a favorite Star Trek episode of mine, hands down. It's about the similar strengths that both of these shows have to contribute to examine painful but necessary ideas. Um, I I, I could go on and on, but, you know, we're going to run out of hard drive space at a certain point. So I'll stop (laughs) and I will ask you how you feel this episode holds up. 
Well, John, I, I'm going to be completely honest and I'm going to deviate from your thoughts. I'm really not. I'm, I'm not. I'm, I'm just trying to, again, I'm trying yeah, to like bring yeah. a little levity to it because... Sense, sense of drama and levity, yes. There's, there's so much about this episode um, that you've already pointed out that I agree with. This episode is an onion. You know, and yeah. uh, if you know your Shrek, it's about layers, layers mm-hmm. and, and parfaits, as the mm-hmm. metaphor goes. You know, the more I peel it, the more we peel back at this episode, and probably from this point on and for years to come, it reveals more and more and more because this is one of those episodes that transcends your own experience from where you are now to where you're going to watch it, say, five years from now, 10 years from now, because the world changes along with you. But this kind of narrative anchors you to the moment. I know this is going to be a bold statement, and I know that it's only been 14 episodes, but I think Chitrell is far and away the best episode I've seen in Voyager to date, mm. period, for mm. me. Interesting. Okay. As, and, yeah. and, and you brought up a lot of similar points. The episode has great writing. It has powerful emotional beats and moments. It has great moral twists and turns. And especially in Neelix's case, it has this masterful subversion of expectations to m- to mask like the character that we learned about in Caretaker to now and the 15 years prior to that between uh, when Neelix, uh, when he deserted, you know, the Talaxan Mm -hmm. army. So, and yes, the episode reminds me in many ways of duet as well. When you break it down Mm -hmm. to its basic elements, like duet uh, with Nana and of course, with the great Harris Yulin Mm -hmm. as Maritza, right? Mm -hmm. What you have in this episode are two incredible actors just like them, but now you have Ethan Phillips and James Sloyan who, like Nana and like and Harris Yulin, they transcend their characters, which gives the audience so much more than was say on the written page, you know. Yeah. And obviously, it transcends what they are what they are performing through the prosthetics that they have to perform behind. So there comes a time when an episode achieves, and this is a big word. I haven't used this word before yet on Mission Log. Mm, Versimilitude. Okay. Oh, nice. All right. Yep. Yeah. Versimilitude, or the transcendence from the science fiction fantasy into a believable reality, because the truth is the mm-hmm. actor's first responsibility, the truth and honesty of the character are being brought to life. And for me, as much as I loved seeing Ethan bring us something incredible to watch with Neelix, James Sloyan as Jatrell is just, he's a signature element in Star Trek that is beyond description in my opinion he he's just one of those actors and he's only had like you said in trivia those three specific roles mm-hmm. but each one of those roles anchors a very specific memory of a quality performance in star trek and that's transcendent that is something that okay like harris yolen's maritza he didn't have preparation he just knew it he yeah. just had that character, that quality of an actor, and just performed and gave us something that we will be talking about for generations to come. So that's what I love about Ethan as Neelix also, is that he's probably given us a performance of a lifetime, and yet we still have six seasons left to see where Neelix is going to go. <laughs> right. Yeah. So the performance that he gives us here is going to obviously influence what we thought about Neelix at the beginning, but way further into the future in the next six seasons. So what I loved also about this episode and why I rank it so highly is that when, a, when an episode of TV brings me to the point of tears, mm-hmm. that's when I feel that I'm at its most connected to it. There are few things in our lives that we have direct control over, and I believe that the ability to forgive someone is one of them. And I'll talk about that in a little bit later. Okay. Well, yeah, I think that brings us to our our messages, morals, meanings. And I think, you know, again, this is one of those episodes where you can keep peeling back those layers and decide where to focus your discussion about those morals, meanings, messages. Uh, So I I look forward to the continued conversation. I, I think there's something at the heart of this trying to pick apart the difficulty of knowing what a truly moral decision is. There are things that are moral, there are things that are immoral, there are things that are amoral, that uh, we we kind of just look at what the consequences are in the end and decide, well, can we live with them? Can we forgive each other for those decisions? Um, Can we hopefully do better in the future? Neelix is motivated by, well, fear, self-preservation, maybe a hundred other factors that compelled him to not 
fight in his people's war. Was that the moral choice? Can can we be okay with someone who, for whatever reason, decides not to fight if there is a moral question or moral problem at stake there, even if it, it is simply just the defense of those innocent people around him. So we're sort of asking ourselves, who are we if we're in Neelix's shoes? And then there's Chitrell, who at the time was thinking that he was acting on duty and doing what was right to end the war and in doing so unleashing a horrific weapon that killed hundreds of thousands. And if we can't forgive him, are we okay with him forgiving himself? You know, do, and it, this is an interesting episode where we keep asking ourselves, has he forgiven himself? There are moments uh, like him saying that he sleeps fine every night. Well, he doesn't say that he sleeps fine, but he says that he sleeps no worse than he has in the last 15 years. And that's almost designed as a way to tweak Neelix a bit to get that reaction out of him. But we don't really know. What we know is that at the end, at least Neelix finds it himself to forgive Chitrell. And also, I, I like the exploration here that there are some acts that can be selfish, yet ultimately altruistic. And, and those things aren't always exclusive, <laughs> you know, being selfish and being altruistic. Don't always cancel each other out. You know, look at Jatrell. He may be selfishly motivated to absolve himself of what he did, but is it okay if those actions satisfy that need as long as they also benefit others? That That is partly what he's going for here. I'm always fascinated by the aftermath of conflict how easy or how difficult it is for some people to put aside the conflict and start to see each other as people again and start to work together again, maybe again through that period of forgiveness. So what is that period? What, what do we do? What is the process of getting from that point of trying to destroy each other to then working together? Like, what is the time scale? What is the appropriate punishment that is acceptable on both sides. Do you remember uh, the TNG episode, The Survivors? Mm -hmm. Kevin Uxbridge, remember it, it was him on that planet living in that fabulous Malibu home, <laughs> right? Okay, his actions were so horrific that Captain Picard said, we don't even know where or how to start to conceive of a punishment for you. So, so he just stays to contemplate what he did and, and live out his life. And, and there's a case to be made here that we sometimes have to put aside some of the most painful and egregious actions against each other because it's more important that we find whatever shred of forgiveness we have that lets us move on. Neelix has this very telling, very true, but very difficult line here. He says, I would rather die than to help you ease your conscience. So, how long is the right amount of time or the right punishment, the, the right feeling of vindication to be able to, to hang on to righteous anger, but then to be able to let it go? Mm -hmm. Those are great questions, John. And I, I really do hope that uh, our audience engages with us uh, with, with their perspectives on this. But ultimately for me, the moral that I landed on is forgiveness. I believe that Chitrell is ultimately about forgiveness and not necessarily from somebody else and not necessarily being forgiven by history or being forgiven by the future generations who have studied the past. And as we have brought up, say, Oppenheimer, you know, mm -hmm. and World War II, of which this episode is clearly inspired from, both Chitrell and Neelix's souls have been blackened and tortured by the events during the Metreon Cascade. Mm -hmm. The forgiveness I'm talking about is the forgiveness from one's own self. For over 15 years, Jatrell has tried to earn that self-forgiveness through science. That's, that was his goal. When he unleashed the Metreon Cascade, he knew what he did. Right. In the name of science. Conversely, he wanted to try and rectify that through science. Now, Neelix, he's kept that self-forgiveness at a distance through diffusing what is clearly post-traumatic stress from his act of cowardice in the war, 
by projecting this innocent, happy-go-lucky Neelix, who you know we see as obnoxious and bombastic. But maybe he was that way before the Talaxian War with the Harkonians, and then only that part of him survived because the rest of him is a burden and is torturing him for these last 15 years. So harboring mm-hmm. this hatred, this shame, this fear, this its isolation, it's cost both of these men so dearly. It cost them their futures. It cost them living their fullest lives filled with family and happiness and opportunity and optimism. This is what hate can do to a person. Hate is literally the opposite of joy. Like darkness is the opposite of light. Both of these men lost the light inside of them. Jatrell, when he lost his wife and his children when they left him, and Neelix, when he lost his family who were killed in the Metreon Cascade. After so much death and so much pain, what's left? How does one move on? As you were asking, John, like how does one reconcile how long it takes to forgive? Mm-hmm. Many believe that forgiveness is the only way to move forward. But let's go back to my original opening statement. Not necessarily the forgiveness of others or from others. And in some mm-hmm. cases, that might be the easier path to move forward, to be forgiven by somebody else. But it's the forgiveness of self, right? It's the absolution of blame. It's the shedding of guilt. It's this cathartic process that it burns away all that surrounds it to reveal the truth. And in this case, in the end, when Neelix forgave Jutrell, he unburdened himself from the inevitability of the blackness that was eroding his soul. And now his healing process can begin. Mission Log is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment. If you'd like to support us directly, you can do so at patreon.com slash mission log for early access to shows and the mission log discord. Our website is missionlogpodcast.com. And for more Star Trek news and discussion, be sure to visit trekmovie.com. On the next mission log, learning curve. Some of the music for mission log provided by warp 11 online at warp 11.com. Special thanks to consulting producers, Adam Brusky, Matt Esposito, Homer Frizzell, John Mann, Mike Richards, and Mike Shabel. I suppose it could be worse. He could have tried to absolve himself of war crimes, and then tried to sell them candy bars. transmission. This is a Roddenberry podcast. For more great podcasts, visit podcast.roddenberry.com.